Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Maureen Dowd is a Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist with the New York Times and a best-selling author, known for her insightful commentary on US politics, acerbic wit and sharp one-liners, many of them, these days, directed at US President Donald Trump. In her most recent column, written in the wake of Trump's apparent reluctance to condemn white supremacists who staged a rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, in which a young woman was killed, she wrote, There will be a lot of pain while this president is in office, and the clock will turn back on many things. But we will come out stronger once this last shriek of white supremacy and grievance and fear of the future is out of the system. Every day, President Trump teaches us what values we cherish, and they're the opposite of his. Maureen's New York Times column appears every Monday in the Irish Times, and I'm very pleased to say she joins me today in our podcast studio. Maureen, you're very welcome. Thank you. Um, I suppose it's inevitable we're going to speak about Donald Trump. Um, we've had plenty of time, we had plenty of time to see the Trump presidency coming, um, long campaign, and even though we may not have, many of us didn't think it was going to happen, we had, we had fair warning about the kind of president he was going to be. But now, eight, nine months into his term of office, um, how would you characterize um, that first eight or nine months? Has it gone according to your expectations? Um. Well, I think we knew that it would be utter chaos. We just didn't realize that it would be utter, utter, utter chaos. I mean, it's beyond anything in history, I would say. It's worse would, than you expected. Yeah, I would say it's the craziest thing that's ever happened in American political history. Um it's it's hard to even describe. You know, a lot of people in Washington are very um, frightened about Trump. They're very frightened about him stumbling into some Twitter war with North Korea. Um, when you go to parties in Washington now, people are scared. You know, it's a very strange atmosphere. So, you know, I was I was telling someone in the old days during the Cold War, everyone would um, be scared that the generals would have a coup on a peacenik president. And now everyone wants the generals to have a coup <laughs> because they think that General Mattis and General Kelly and General McMaster seem a lot more grounded than uh, President Trump. You, you mentioned North Korea. We're all worried about North Korea right now and we would be worried anyway given the you know behavior of the of the regime there um, but you, you actually had a column recently one of your recent columns had the headline will the blowhard blow us up um, do you think you actually might well you know you're dealing with the case of um, two kind of uh, chubby brats from um, uh, dynasties who uh, have short fuses and long missiles. So that's a dangerous situation. I mean, I wrote about W and the Iraq War for eight years, and to me that was the worst foreign policy mistake in American history, the Iraq War and how we got into it and how it was waged were such uh, tragic Results for America, and I, um, I think we got into that war because, you know, the Bush family bet, bet noir was being called a wimp, and 
uh, Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld sort of persuaded W that we had to go into Iraq by playing on that idea of manliness, that America had to be a hyperpower and we couldn't, you know, let them get away with this and we had to kick someone's butt. So I've seen that idea of hyper-masculine kind of taunting get us into the worst war that we've ever had. That war is now longer than all our other wars put together. So that can happen because when you get in the White House, a lot of gremlins come out, a lot of insecurities, you know, you can be a completely different person than you seem to be before you got that job. At a time when you should be very confident and feel affirmed, you can feel insecure and, you know, you can have people playing on that idea that you're not a real man if you let this person get away with that. So it can be very dangerous. But it's very hard to see to read Trump, isn't it? Because sometimes he comes across as this great macho man and then he'll tweet his admiration for the North Korean leader, Kim Jong-un, you know. So um, you've actually met him uh, quite a few times. So, like, is there a real Donald Trump or is there a... Yeah, how well, would you characterize I, him? I think he thinks he's a master of psychology. And in fact, in one of his business books, he talked about Jung and, you know, the, how he comes up with these nicknames for people, as he did in the Republican uh, primary, that are, you know, very thought out and psychologically damaging. So I think he's trying out different things on the North Korean leader. He's trying to out crazy him. And then he was trying to flatter him and say, oh, he's behaving very well now. He listened to us and didn't launch a missile, but then he went ahead and did. So now, you know, Mattis is threatening annihilation. So I think they're throwing a lot of things against the wall because what can actually work? He was trying flattery with the Chinese leader. He had him down at Mar-a-Lago and, you know, was trying to flatter him into helping with North Korea. So I think Donald Trump thinks he's a master of psychology, even though he himself is very easily manipulated on the basis of his ego. And where do you think his instinct would lie in, a, in say, in terms of the North Korean crisis? Would his instinct be to sort of, you know, the, the macho side, let's, you know, get in there, take him on? Are, do you think he's, he's a guy who pulls back at the last moment? Well, that's what I think it's hard to tell, because if W, you know, uh, before he became president, he said he didn't want to do nation building and he wanted a humble foreign policy. And he was sort of a guy who got along with both sides of the aisle. And then 9-11 terrified him. And changed him, and and Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld were able to manipulate him, and his presidency became the opposite of what he had promised. So I just don't think you can tell. For instance, over the decades, when I, whenever I interviewed Donald Trump, he had a very non-interventionist attitude. He was very down on the Iraq War and the way it was being waged, and you know he thought we were involved in too many of these foreign wars, and we should be focused on ourselves. But now he's in a different game, and his ego and his face and his manliness are all wrapped up in it. So it's just hard to tell how people are going to behave once they're president. 
There's a question I asked, um, I had your colleague from the New York Times, Declan Walsh, on this podcast a week ago, and I asked him this question. There's a pattern you see with, with Trump in be North Korea, Qatar, um, Egypt, where he says one thing, usually something hardline and bellicose, usually on Twitter, and then his administration or his senior members of his administration go and do something else. So Rex Tillerson is trying to resolve the Qatar problem while Trump is openly siding with the with the Saudis. Um, do, do you think that's Trump sort of playing does he play clever politics to keep people guessing as to um, what his real position is? Or um, is there a constant friction there between him and his senior people? Yeah, we wonder about that, too. It's hard to tell if some of these things are coordinated. But in the case of Tillerson, no, he's mad at him about that Qatar thing because <clears throat> Trump and Jared um, his son-in-law thought that, you know, they have this new alliance in the Middle East where they're, they have this new bond with Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. And, you know, they're on board with that punishing Qatar thing. So I think that's part of what, in the end, may drive Tillerson out because Trump doesn't agree with some of his policy positions. But it's interesting because sometimes— Yes, the, his administration people will try and soften what he's saying, but that's what's scary about North Korea, that Mad Dog Mattis came out and was talking about annihilation, which was even stronger than what Trump was saying. As a columnist, do you get up every morning and thank God for Donald Trump? I mean, he's, <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's great material, isn't he? Yeah, um, no other journalist will admit this, but... Um, President Trump has been the best thing that's ever happened to the media in terms of both access. Our White House reporters say he's the most accessible politician they've ever dealt with. And um, also, you know, he... We have many, many more digital subscriptions. The Washington Post does. You know, the liberal cable stations are going gangbusters. So Donald Trump is an amazing story with 20 cliffhangers a day. And, uh, you know, he took a dying industry that's desperately trying to figure out how to survive and gave us this larger-than-life you know, in many ways, like a Batman villain. And uh, so he's giving us all these amazing stories every day. So even though he bashes the media, he's like Narcissus and the media is like his mirror and we're locked in this mutually beneficial, if sordid, relationship. It's astonishing, though, isn't it, that he... he, he tweets constantly about the failing New York Times. And yet, as you say, he seems to be more accessible, you say, more accessible um, than any other president has been in recent in recent memory. Yeah, he, you know, a reporter will pick up their cell phone and it'll be Trump. He'll have them over for on background, you know, 45 minute sessions. And he, um, you know, I have found with Bush Sr. and with Trump that when their fathers love the New York Times, the New York Times holds a very special place in their hearts. And Trump, the first call he made after he was president was to the New York Times op-ed board, and he asked to come over and talk to us. And then he stayed two hours, and he was sort of charming that day. You know, it was before he got really growly and belligerent, and he was sort of still happy to have been elected and shocked because on election night— 
you know, he assumed he lost at about six at night. He said to Hope Hicks, his aide, you know, well, the only thing I'm going to miss is the motorcade. Like everybody, us, him, we all thought he had lost. So, but the first call he made was to us. He really, you know, wants our regard. And even though you see him trashing us, he is accessible to our reporters. Now, of course, um, he didn't lose Hillary Clinton last. And you, you've written quite critically of Hillary Clinton over a long period of time. But what, what kind of president do you think she would have made? Again, I just think it's really hard to say. I've covered enough presidents that, you know, it, it makes me feel that what I do for a living doesn't matter because I try and give the reader as much information about any candidate as I can. And yet, when they get in office, the enormous pressure of that just tends to bring out insecurities in ways you can't predict. Like Johnny Apple, our wonderful political writer, once predicted before he died that W would be a very popular bipartisan president. And if it weren't for 9-11, I think he would have been. And, you know, it's just very hard to tell what historical event is going to collide with what personal gremlins that come out. So I don't know. You know, I just think it's hard to say what kind of president anyone would be. It's very challenging for the media, isn't it? Because um, the, the standards have changed so much. So that what I'm thinking particularly of is in, in the past, or until the very recent past, if a president told a lie, that would be a big story. If Barack Obama was caught telling a lie, it would be a big story and probably could be on the front page of the New York Times. Now you have a president that tells so many lies. And I think my um, take, and I watch the New York Times and Washington Post, and they, they, they try to hold them to the same standard. But you end up then having the same stories again and again and again. And then this feeds the narrative that they're on his case and they won't give him a break. Yeah. So it's, it's a difficult dilemma, isn't it, for them to know how to, how to report on him and deal yeah. with him? Well, you know, with um, when I covered uh, the Iraq war, I was constantly using a thesaurus to try and come up with different words than liar about Dick Cheney because we weren't allowed to call a politician or a president or vice president liars. And so Trump's two legacies at the New York Times will be that we have two new rules, which is we um, can uh, use the word liar, big fat, say big fat whoppers that the president is telling, and we have started printing dirty words on the front page because of Trump. So those are not good legacies to have. And do you think when this period ends, whenever it ends, um, we'll go back to the way things were before? Or has the political discourse been changed permanently now? I think that's the most interesting mystery about this. I've been trying to fathom this. And on the one hand, I've been thinking that if we went back to a classy president, that it, it would be just like a bad dream and aberration. And everything would snap back to where it was because Americans, in many ways, are so disgusted by his behavior. But on the other hand, at times, I think he's like the sort of uh, Frankenstein or Rosemary's baby of several trends of social media and reality TV and politics so that it represents a coarsening of the culture 
And, you know, maybe it's like Pandora's box. We're never going to get it back in. Or, you know, in, you know, in Fantasia, there's that great thing, Night on Bald Mountain, where all the spirits come up over the mountain. And I'm not sure that some of the things that have been unleashed will ever go back. You know, and then there's the other question of whether now we're just going to have celebrity presidents like Mark Cuban or George Clooney. <laughs> you know, we'll never go back to politicians. I, I or Kanye West wants to run. I think most of us would prefer George Clooney anyway. Probably <laughs> Maybe Trump. we'll have Kim Kardashian <laughs> as our first lady. And, um, and, and where do you see this his presidency going? Do you think he will, he will do a full term in office and will he might even do a second term? But might he survive for a second term, do you think? Yeah, I think there's a lot of wishful thinking that he would be impeached or he would resign or he's not really into it and he wants to go back to Fifth Avenue. But Trump's whole value system is winning. It's not morality. It's just winning. His father taught him there are winners and there are killers who win and there are losers. So he doesn't want to be a loser. So I don't. And also, I think as hard as this is to believe in his own head, he's doing well. That's what Maggie Haberman, our White House reporter, says. And she talks to him quite extensively, like he thinks he's doing great. So it isn't like he feels like he's a failure and his tail is tucked between his legs and he's going to slink off. He thinks he's doing great. He just thinks he's not getting the credit he deserves. And maybe he is doing well in the eyes of his own supporters. There's no there's no great evidence around of sort of buyer remorse about him yet, is there? Yeah, you know, I, I, my brother and his sons all voted for Trump and they are quite content because... They wanted three things. They wanted, um, well, maybe four things. They wanted Hillary Clinton not to be in the White House. They wanted um, the Supreme Court to be more conservative. They wanted fewer regulations, and they wanted the stock market to go up. So they don't follow the rest of the kind of Michigas day-to-day. They are quite happy with the results that they've seen so far, which, you know, the other side can't literally fathom. Like, no one—my liberal friends in New York and Washington think my family is nuts. They literally can't understand how anyone can think that way. And I think that instead of understanding the other side, we're getting farther and farther away from understanding each other. Mm. So, so would you feel America is even more divided now than it was even at the start of his presidency? It's yeah, just I mean, worse. literally, mm. we're like refighting the Civil War. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's crazy. We are—I used to think, you know, I was going to fix my uh, nephew up with uh, Senator Casey's daughter, who was a Democrat, and, you know, that wouldn't have occurred to me before that I couldn't do that. But now I think the atmosphere is so toxic. Like, I didn't even think you could have a mixed relationship like that of a Democrat and a Republican, because people get so nasty and and angry 
uh, and enraged at the other side's thinking. So, so we have a new definition of a mixed marriage there. <laughs> so I just just to finish, Maureen, on something non-Trump, uh, not directly related to Trump, but you've been writing your, your column now since 1995, I think, in the New York Times. And of course, the landscape, the media landscape has changed so much since then, and especially with the rise of social media. I'm just wondering, do you enjoy working in this different environment? I mean, do you, um, do you think it's a more democratic space now where everybody really has has a platform to vent an opinion or do you hanker a bit after the the older days? I, you know, I think of Twitter as like the French Revolution, which unfortunately makes me Marie Antoinette. But um, I really like it. I just, the problem is that opinion now moves faster than news. In the old days, Walter Lippmann or Arthur Kroc would uh, present an opinion after a week and everyone would wait to hear the opinion. <laughs> and now, you know, it's flying fast and thick with everyone in the country. So it's more democratic. And, you know, I love reading Twitter, but but it is psychologically a lot more stressful because how can you possibly think of anything to say that hasn't been said, you know, by a million other people by the time you get to your column. So my column, I turn it in Friday night, it runs on Sunday, and it's holding for two days. So in those two days, you know, you can't make a joke or think of a headline that someone else hasn't thought of. So there's an enormous pressure for originality to try and think of something that hasn't been said. But that being said, you know, the more the merrier. I mean, I love it as a consumer of information. It's just hard as a writer. And do you pay attention to um, what people say about your, your columns on social media, positive or, uh, positive or negative? And do you ever engage with, uh, with people? No, because if I did that, I would just be curled in a ball on the floor of my house if I ever looked. I just couldn't. I am like so, ironically enough, hypersensitive. So I try and, um, you know, I, I did a story once on uh, J.D. Salinger's letters to Joyce Maynard, and he had great, as an older writer to a younger writer, he had great advice to her. He said, never listen to the criticism or the applause because they can be equally warping. Are you optimistic about the future for choose your label, mainstream media, uh, traditional media. I mean, we're all, we're all worried about the future, you know, about um, how we can make money from journalism. And do you think, uh, um, you mentioned the Trump bounce, I suppose, the, the, the response to Trump and how it has driven subscriptions in some of the major newspapers in the, in the U.S. But the longer term future, do you think we should be optimistic? Um, I'm not sure, you know. I mean, I... I hope that Trump has taught everyone an important lesson in journalism, which is that if you have an amazing story and you just pursue that story, that the public will respond. I mean, it's just a great—I don't know if it's Shakespeare. You know, I've talked to Shakespearean experts about this, and they say he's not complicated enough to be a Shakespearean <laughs> character. Uh, so I don't, you know, he's more like a tune or a Batman character, but he's a larger than life figure. And it's a great, many ways, horrible story. And I think 
I hope we've all learned that a great story is something that the public will want to read if you tell the story correctly. Here's to that. Morning, Dad. <laughs> Morning, Dad. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, that's it for this week. You can read Maureen Dowd's column on irishtimes.com every Monday. Thanks for listening and goodbye for now.